Hello, Heron. <clears throat> Hi, John. Ah, so, I have to apologise to the listeners because I didn't actually have a chance to put any of my topics on the uh, Facebook group this week, but I have uh, roughly a dozen topics in front of me. <laughs> oh, that- and how much time do we have? Is your wife home? Or? Yes, she is. So we, we are a little <laughs> okay. time limited this evening. The five-hour show, folks, I think was a once-off, never to be repeated. Yeah, that was, that was fun. Um, you know, yeah. and uh, Yeah. So uh, I have a couple things I, I want to talk Terrific. about. Terrific. You know, um, one is really simple stuff. Uh, you're obviously way more tech-savvy than I am. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm looking at these new portable... Uh, two terabyte drives that I can buy for like a hundred and twenty bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen these, I guess, mm-hmm. and um, they're they're being marketed as backup drives. Yes, and I'm wondering, are they unsuitable as working drives, or they're just uh, a little slow? That's yeah. the distinction, basically. So what you get in in volume of data, you lose in yeah. speed of access. Okay, so that's really. I mean, these are. I would imagine, fairly reliable drives and should last quite a while. I lost, out of the two terabyte drives that I've owned, I lost one of them due to a power supply, which basically burnt out the power supply and the drive was unusable. But um, aside from that, I mean, I think the notion of a backup drive is ideally you'll have some other means as well as the backup drive of, of holding the data, but it, yeah. in a pinch it is useful. Well, I mean, for basically all I'm going to use them for is to put uh, movies on them and watch movies. I would imagine they should be good enough for that, right? Certainly. I mean, if what you're doing is storing movies on them, then yes, that would be ideally Well, and watching them. I would probably watch them on... Um, well, well, I'll find out, actually, if it doesn't play right. <laughs> I'll know. I you'll can't. find out very quickly, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yes. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at a couple of these things, and they're, they're, I can't believe how cheap they are. I did notice they were slow. You know, I've, I've got this offer that I'll give anybody my entire media collection if they send me a hard drive. <laughs> and so... Um, Somebody sent me one of these two terabyte, uh, uh, this is a Western Digital, mm-hmm. my passport drive. And it was slow copying stuff to it. That, yeah. that was noticeable. That's what's sort of strange because they're, they're selling it as a, as a USB 3. <laughs> but I don't know how good the USB 3 is on a drive. It's probably running at a pretty low RPM, I would imagine, right? I think it's to do, it, the RPM is not the important part. It's the throughput. And because of the USB 3 standard, even with that, it's going to be relatively slow. I mean, what you want is is FireWire or, you know, ThunderWire yeah. or whatever the latest, you know, yeah. standard is. And USB just, unfortunately, doesn't cut it. It's fast zero. E- even USB 3? Um, well, I mean, USB I mean, not 3. on one of the... On a regular drive, though, it shouldn't be a problem, right? I mean, a regular desktop external drive? Yeah, it shouldn't be a problem as an external drive, no. Um, <laughs> I mean, we use ours for a periodic backup, and that's probably the the yeah. ideal use for them. And if you're copying over a lot of stuff, well, obviously, you set it up to copy, you kind of go to bed, you wake up in the morning, and it's copied over yeah, or something right. like that. Yeah, so, yeah it yeah. took me uh, 20-something hours yes. <laughs> to, uh, to copy. Uh, it took me three days, actually. I mean, I didn't do it all at once, you know. I, but it was something like, I don't remember how many hours, but it was many hours. Yes. <laughs> to, to, and it was, even that was only one point 
1.8, about 1.8 terabytes. But still, we say only 1.8 terabytes, like, <laughs> so easily. <laughs> it is absolutely astonishing. Yeah, yeah. Although really. I'm, a little, I'm a little disappointed because it's taken more than two years for... I mean, I remember a terabyte drive has been about 100... Terabyte drive was 120 bucks at least three years ago. Real, so yeah, yeah, it is, hasn't come. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's not coming down as fast as. It, but still, you know, I, that's the thing is, I'm really reaching pretty much the limit. I've got, I don't know, maybe ten drives here, probably ten terabytes worth of stuff. Mm. Uh, and but that that's not going up. I'm thinking about buying two more two terabyte drives, and and I think that may be the end of my. You know, because my my boot drive I, I, it doesn't go up at all. I mean, there aren't any new applications really anymore that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it's pretty stable around 770 uh, gigs, mm-hmm. and it's been that way for more than a year. Yeah. So, uh, so the rest of the stuff is just storing media. So, you, so then uh, these drives might be okay for that, just to store media. And, and, and Okay, good. Yeah. And it, do you think they're less reliable than these big honking desktop drives that I've got here? Well, I'm not sure what... I would imagine that they're slightly... I mean, my experience has been that, that yes, I've, I've not... I've had hard drives fail on me previously, but out of the two that I bought, one of them failed on me. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's 50%. I mean, yeah. I could probably buy more, but the one that we have currently works fine. And I think it's interesting, actually, because a lot of the a lot of the stuff that we lost on the other drive was mainly photographs. Um, my wife, for a period of time, took a lot of photographs, and we did lose a good portion of those photos on the drive. We were only like a third of the way through filling, filling that terabyte drive. So, yeah. Yeah, I've been paranoid for years and years. I always buy drives in pairs. Everything is backed up. <laughs> and uh, it's it's been great. I, I haven't lost anything since I, I lost a whole hard drive once. <laughs> and uh, never again. It's just a strange emotion. I mean, certainly up until, really up until I was... About 25, I had a series of, you know, not necessarily losing computers, but just not having reliable access to computers. I purchased computers, and then through moving and a variety of other constraints, you know, sometimes I'd take them with me, sometimes I'd take drives with me. But I think it's something that I talk to people about associated with Noble Ape, because Noble Ape was always intended to be compiled on whatever I could get my hands on, and that was basically because I led a nomadic kind of digital existence. Yeah. Um, and I think, although I owned laptops, one of the laptops I stored at my in-laws when I moved to um, the UK, and when I came back, they'd had both a flood and a dust storm, and that laptop was <laughs> Why just... wouldn't you take your laptop with you? Um, so this is an interesting thing. Why didn't I take that laptop with me? I was in the process of um, some legal nonsense when I left the US, and I just didn't want to take any of that legacy with me. I mean, I basically, I wanted to keep it in the US... And also, yeah, it was a double thing because there was an argument over who actually owned the laptop, and I just—it was easier just when those parties contacted me say, "I didn't have that laptop. I don't have that laptop anymore." Quite truthfully, and um, when I got back, basically the laptop, I scooped the dust and the water out of it, and I was able to get the hard drive out and reboot <laughs> it. But really, it was never the same. It was yeah. a PowerBook um, fourteen hundred. I have since purchased another PowerBook fourteen hundred, which I purchased in the UK. Um, maybe a few months after I arrived in the UK. Uh, and there were various techniques with that computer. There, were, there was a fault on the hinges, 
So you had to glue, I used to take VHS uh, cassettes, the flip-up thing on the front of the thing that held the magnetic tape back. Yeah. I would cut those up into little bits and put, like, armouring <laughs> on the, uh, in order to, because there would always be a crack that would appear that would then break through the laptop, and that was the yeah. fix for that with some super glue. But no, I like the, I mean, my current um, power book is basically a similar form factor. It's the same 13-inch kind of screen size. Yeah. It's a little bigger. But I really like that form factor of the 13-inch um, 1400. See, I liked the uh, the 17-inch, and mm. uh, now I've got an iMac. I, mm-hmm. I got because I really just don't need the portable anymore, mm-hmm. you know. And so, but I'm thinking at some point I'm probably am going to buy another portable, and you know, it's not even an option anymore. 15 is it with that Retina display, but. Damn, that's expensive. <laughs> it requires a different power supply as well. I'm pretty sure it does. I'm not confirmed this, but I've seen people at work with a slightly different power supply, and it requires more juice, basically. Um, it's interesting, actually, because I think the, the retina display is just absolutely phenomenal. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, but at the same point, it's also something where to really get that resolution on a larger monitor is, is slightly more impressive. And I've been oh, thinking yeah. about getting... We have a large monitor yeah, um, which we use for, like, HD television and things. But I yeah. think, yeah, I, I probably... No, I'm waiting for the same thing. I've got the 20, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the well, the 27-inch on I know the ones, yep. And it's it's just gorgeous, but, man, it would sure be gorgeouser <laughs> <laughs> with that retina display. Yeah. <laughs> you know, man. It's interesting, yeah. this whole phenomenon of Apple porn. I have a couple of topics that kind of interlink into that. But you, you had another topic you wanted to raise. Well, it was just, uh, I watched Snowtown. Oh, okay. And, uh, and I realized why my, my movie-watching days are slowing down. Mm-hmm. Because essentially, most movies are really just about stupid things language monkeys do. Yes. And... It's just getting boring. <laughs> you know, it's true. Yes, it's very deep. And yet, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on there, but it's all the same fucking story. <laughs> you know, whether it's a romance, you know, or Snowtown. It's just stupid fucking language monkeys who are adrift in a world and and actually believe everything they hear their language machines say. Well, actually, except in the case of Snowtown, it's externalized. I mean, the... The, the young boy is basically being completely manipulated by John Bunting. But we all are. That's, that's the whole game. That's exactly it. It's just he happened to fall within the wrong sphere there. Yes. But, I mean, that's, that's exactly what that's, – it's not any different than what happens to everybody else. I mean, the details are different, <laughs> but the underlying – uh, psychology uh, appears to me to be the same, and that's why it gets boring. So do you think there's any... It's interesting, actually. Do you think there's a hard line associated with killing people? No. So well, you well, think- actually, I'm not sure what you mean by killing people. I mean, what you mean by a hard line and what you mean by killing. I mean, are there cases where it could be justified? Is that what you- No, I'm saying that once you've killed someone... Yeah. You've crossed over a line which ultimately changes you fundamentally. Well, everything changes you. You cross over a line every sip of coffee. I don't know. I, I had fish and chips for dinner tonight, and well, I don't feel crossed, like I've crossed over any well, line. Well, you may not feel it, like it, 
but you did. It reminded me That's how much I, mean, I like fish and chips, but yeah. I mean, well, I don't it, think that changed anything in me well, fundamentally. Well, it, well, that probably didn't all that much, but but the whole point is this this change that you're talking about is not some objective fact. It's an internal evaluation. There's no way to ask. The, it's like asking someone or some people ask, gee, do I really love her? <laughs> you know, it's a stupid question. Well, let's you talk are, about you it with regards declare to... that. It's not something that you find by examining the external world. It's not out there. It's your declaration to make. Would you argue the same thing with regards to psychedelics? Um, no, that's that's different. That's different. <laughs> well, no, actually, that I mean, I, I, the same evaluation goes. But I'd say, I mean, again, the the the. F- the uh, the experiential accompanying factors are vital in, in importance, you know. So um, they're not the same situation. But but what I just said about where the experience is, I, I would I would well the evaluation of the experience. Let me put it that way: the evaluation of the experience is something that is not found out there. It's something we do. And it's, so it's a silly question, like I say, to, to ask, do I really love her? Yeah, but this As, is a theory. I'm not, that wasn't my example. I've given you two examples, yeah. okay. of which with one you said unequivocally no, and with the other oh. one you paused oh, and weren't able to really kind of dig in any deeper, but then move back. To, well, I guess I'm not really clear about, about what the actual question is then. I mean, uh, we started off with, uh, is there a clear line with murder or something. Well, I mean, I, I have a sense, particularly through my childhood, and this comes up periodically as I walk down a pathway after a heavy rain, that there's a certain group of people that will tread on snails. And then there are a certain group of people that won't tread on snails. Yes. And I think the evaluation yeah, yeah. of snails as being something that are easily tread on, tr- yeah. trodden on versus, yeah. for example, killing another human being. I mean, my think. Oh, my okay. sense is that- Oh, yeah. That's a slippery line. <laughs> I, I would. I would suggest. Yes. So uh, some people clearly deserve to be killed. I mean, if you can. Pr- I mean, if they're in the business of causing some kind of huge suffering. Yeah. You know, and you're in a position to uh, st- intervene, then uh, it would. I would say you should. I would anyway. And if it meant killing somebody, well, then so be it. I don't see anything sacred about life per se. I mean, we're all going to die. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's no tragedy. People die. No, I'm not. I'm not arguing that. I, yeah. I agree no, I with you. It. But yeah. I guess, I guess, my viewpoint is that there are certain things in certain experiential things that, while a small portion of the population would just treat it like having fish and chips for dinner. It's still on some relatively fundamental level. I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm arguing here, which we've we've come to this discussion a few times, is associated. <laughs> I don't with, think there are many we haven't. Are well, <laughs> is we've it, covered some pretty. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Is it although in general I'm uh, almost post-Stonian in my relativism? I still think that the once described and evaluated and discussed. There are still some interesting points that are worth 
throwing out there, which is why I threw out psychedelics as well, yeah. because I knew yeah. that would. Be well, I'm not. Before. Well, the thing is, I'm not quite sure how how that maps to the idea of crossing a line, or or, or the idea that how you evaluate something is an internal thing. Uh, well, so what, what specifically about psychedelics are you referring to? Now? So this is very interesting. I was thinking about some of our conversations associated with psychedelics. And also, you've basically said that LSD had no effect on you. But yeah. then you've also said that your early experience with cannabis was very psychedelic. Yes. So have you had any other, aside from cannabis and LSD, have you had any other, I mean, have you had mushrooms or anything like that in terms of... Yeah, but none of them seemed to, I mean, have, I did the cactus. Okay. And um, that didn't seem to do much either, but I only did that once. I was yeah. not, you know, I wasn't crazy, and I've done, uh, I, it wasn't meth what anyway, some upper, whatever, Benzedrine, I oh, okay. guess. Or what, okay. Whatever the upper. Did that have any effect on you? Oh, yeah, I liked that. Okay. <laughs> and cocaine, too. Cocaine was, was amazing. It's interesting, actually. I've talked to, probably, I've, I've talked to my wife about cocaine in particular because that strikes me as a very strange experience. Well, for me, described. it just, uh, well, for me, what I was aware of was just an enormous clarity of mm. everything. Mm. There was just this sense that you, that it was all, there, well, it's, I, I don't know how to talk about it, really. It was quite uncanny mm. and quite nice. But I also was aware, I only did it twice. Mm -hmm. and I knew that, uh, you know, there was, that was just not something I wanted to get involved with. Certainly. Damn, <laughs> you know. I guess sucks. There's better stuff these days. That's mm. that's what I'm. Well, like I say, I'm, I'm looking out for DMT right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is interesting. Of, of my friends, um, the one who I was particularly close with um, used heroin very occasionally, mm. and also opium as well. Did I, I mention my friend, the married couple that takes heroin on their anniversary? I know of couples that do things like that. Oh, really? I don't yeah. think you've yeah. mentioned these specific No, these uh, yeah, I knew somebody who did that. Yeah. You know, once a year, they did heroin on their anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it, you know. Apparently, it's really good. Yes, this is what my <laughs> friend said as well. I mean, this is quite curious because... Well, that's why I was so disappointed in that yeah, Percocet the same shit. Thing. Well, it's I know not it's not the same, same but I was hoping, you know, to get somewhere in that ballpark, maybe. <laughs> it may you not know. have an effect on you, though, Heron. I mean, you it seem may to have not, an interesting yeah. chemistry in this regard. I don't know. Yeah. Well, see, we're just too primitive, and our science is still too stunted mm. to, to look at this stuff uh, intelligently yet. So, yeah, we're in the dark here. So, your, your primary psychedelic experiences have come through cannabis, and they would have come through cannabis probably... Up until what the early seventies, or would they continue through to the eighties? Oh, well, they, that's still part of my life. Uh, but you, do you still get psychedelic effects from it? Um, well, see, that's the thing is, I'm not quite sure what psychedelic means anymore. Hmm. You know, it's like I said, I don't even know what the word "I" means anymore. So, what I've come to realize is really hard for me to compare my internal experience to other people's internal experience and what's weird and well what's so, so, <laughs> as i have the benefit of talking with you yeah can you describe your experience associated with the psychedelic effects of cannabis uh no i don't think i can 
So yeah, did it relate like, to the, color the or objects, well, or did it relate to? I mean, there are things. No, it's can... not so much perceptual. No, okay. it's not. It's not that I'm hallucinating things, or, or. Uh, but the thing is, I'm not sure what's normal and what's not anymore. Like I say, it seems that even when I'm, so it's not that much different between having smoked vitamin M and not having smoked it. But there's some subtle difference that I find hard to talk about. At least call it vitamin C. Vitamin M is the Mexican, you know, misrepresentation by Enslinger at all. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't well, be. Well, vitamin M. Well, that's what I call it. So you, know, you can call <laughs> it what you, you want. You, you picked up from? Did you? But you picked it up from that woman that you talked with, didn't you? I don't recall you using it prior to your conversation oh, with. Uh, I with can't who? think of her name. She was. Um, she was like a a yoga instructor or something who you talked with maybe three years ago now. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I, I think I've been using this term for quite some time. Have you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's, uh, yeah it's M for marijuana. It's just vitamin M. Yes. I guess it could be vitamin W. But or vitamin I, C. Are, that's right. You know, I hadn't thought about that. But see, then it could be confusing. It can't be vitamin C because then people might think you mean vitamin C. Well, no one would think you meant vitamin C the way you use the term. I mean, that's the beauty of it. You want something that completely masks yeah. the meaning to Well, it doesn't really make any difference because it's legal here in California. Well, so it's legal if you have, have a medical... It's, yeah, yes, well, yeah, yes. that's easy to get. Until the feds come, yes. Well, then that's when then we'll be playing a different game. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, but that never the legality of it's sort of irrelevant. It's just that now you can talk about it. Well, I think you could talk. You could always talk about it. Well, well, you, but uh, when it when it's illegal, well, you know, I, I'm just a little paranoid about what can happen. Not too, but <laughs> you know, uh, if somebody takes a disliking, well, I mean, that's part of this space anyway. I've had already run into people who decided they didn't like me. Mm, <laughs> so I, I imagine you have too. So. Yeah, it's occasional. It's occasional. <laughs> it's just part of what you have to put up with. Yeah, yeah, the ones that wield knives and squish, they're the ones you need to be worried about. But Well, that's why I love this aspect of so, it. No, I don't you, have to you've, meet you've, up with you've avoided, you've, you've avoided the question on a series of levels. Let's, let's return which, to this. Which question? You describe an early psychedelic experience associated with cannabis. Mm-hmm. Can you? I mean, you. Oh, these were just... full-out hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was why it was so powerful to me. I mean, all of a sudden, I I experienced stuff that I never even knew anybody could experience. I mean, it, it just opened up doors that I never even imagined there were houses those doors were in. <laughs> so, see the start of our conversation for uh, more internal paradoxes, I guess. Yeah, it is. A, yeah, it is an interesting phenomena. I think we talked about it. That last show was just—it was a marathon to edit more than anything. I think. Oh, it must have been awful. Particularly because <laughs> I was getting pinged constantly by by our new fan base. Let's just call them our new fan base, um, who were constantly saying yes. And the funny thing is, towards so the there end, are people now waiting. What yes. Saturday morning? Yes. <laughs> They hassle me, Heron. They hassle me hard. Good. Keep keep him on his toes, man. The funny thing is, towards the end, I 
So what I normally cut is wine-related talk, talk associated with the fan, all this kind of stuff. The last hour is just me saying, Aaron, the fan's blowing, the fan's blowing into the mic. <laughs> I left all that stuff in there, just just so the, the true fans that got to the end would get the, the proper experience of uh, one of these evenings uh, on the stage. Uh, yeah, yeah, really, yeah. It's a pain in the ass to really, that's why I don't edit any of my, I, I I check, you know, I look for long silences because mm-hmm. you can look at them visually, and I chop those out, and then I look for a good place to end it and a good place to start it, and and then add the music to the end of it, and I'm done. Yeah. But even that's a pain in the ass, so I, I can't even imagine what you're going through. <laughs> yeah, I write notes as well, and typically, I mean, for you, some of the... You keep notes during the conversation? No, or no, not during the conversation, oh, no, as I'm doing the edit, yeah. yeah. Okay, I did so that originally act- for some podcasts, so I don't think I've ever done that for Stone Ape. Hmm. It's too, it's too well, much Sometimes hassle. that might be useful to bring some notes into, uh, rather than taking them. Oh, well, I've got notes here. I've got notes yeah. here. No, yeah, no, but I mean, even taking notes. I'd say anything's up for grabs uh, <laughs> in, in any situation. You never know uh, what might be appropriate. You know, mm. it's all available. <laughs> mm. I certainly am going to take notes if I think I need to. Very good. Very good. So, um... From our from our last show, just a little bit of update. I had a nice chat with Andrew. I think on Sunday, uh, just after I no, maybe I hadn't put the show out just then when I'd spoken to him. And yeah, we clarified. Firstly, he he listened to the show and said everything I said was fine. So he wasn't in any way offended by being referenced in the show. Um, but it was yeah, it was nice to actually have a chat with him good. Uh, and get a sense of him as a you know an existential entity. Which was yeah, nice. good, good. I'm I'm glad. I like Andrew. Yes, yes, I like Andrew too. So, so I have a wide variety of notes that go in a wide variety of different directions here. Ah, yes, the idea of self-fulfilling communities. So towards the end of the last recording, we talked a little bit about the zeitgeist movement versus Scientology, or in, in similarity to Scientology. Really? And I don't think I... <laughs> it must have been very close to the end. <laughs> I, I don't think I made the point clearly enough associated with the kind of multiplicity of experience that's distilled. I mean, the notion of being born again oh, in yeah. a group where it's defined is a very interesting experience because I actually think that that's the closest thing to shared consciousness that humans can do. Because there's almost an agreement that there is something that's not to be described. That kind of be, being well, born, born again. Ag- yeah, 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 I'll let you. Well, I was just saying, born again for me is the only thing I've ever heard that even remotely resembles what happened to me uh, when I read that Alan Watts book. Mm. The person after that, uh, after that, really, and it happened in a period of five seconds, mm. uh, was a different entity that had not existed before. I think that's actually, particularly in terms of um, like group born again circumstances, which may have something to do with. The, well, that's yeah, that may be something quite different. Well, you know, est, you know, these kind of. I mean, I don't really aside from you. Ah, okay, yeah, I would say I'm not quite sure what the relationship is between what I had alone in my room with that book, and I and I did est too, mm-hmm. and what happened in that uh, hotel room over those two weekends. Yes. I think they're somewhat related, but they're certainly not the same thing. No, I'm not. I, I guess my point is that in terms of the collection of human experiences, 
it's in fact those kind of points in groups that probably create the closest connection of human experience. Ah, yeah, that's certainly yeah. Okay, yeah, uh, that's it's one of the. It's a big deal. That's, yeah. it, it's no, a no, but I think deal. it's an interesting <laughs> point of analysis because your description in the last recording was that everyone has the same story coming up to that point. Um, maybe the same set of contradictions. And I think actually the antithesis of that is the case, that people have... The, well, the, it's, the sa- it's both. <laughs> we, we have... It is... I mean, we come with... An, just because you just take the English-speaking world, mm-hmm. all, that already defines huge parts of the story. It makes them identical in everybody. But the details and the feelings and the nuances, and those are unique to every individual. So... I've been watching things on YouTube recently, associated, most, most recently last night, associated with Jimmy Savile, who was a disc jockey and television personality in the UK. That was the guy, yeah, the guy that got busted for kids, after, right? No, no, it was after he died. They couldn't actually yeah, right, bring yeah, charges yeah, to yeah, him right, while he was yeah, alive because he yeah. was too wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> he basically had litigated and won against papers that had tried to bring the information out, and it had a chilling okay. effect associated yeah. with... The thing that struck me through that was they put up photos of or video of him with the royal family, with various politicians, with various other celebrities, and I thought, there must be some group of people out there that views all these images in a positive light. When I see royalty famous people, and politicians. I think basically <laughs> a career pedophile is exactly the same kind of person with those group of people. I don't think of any of these people in a positive light. And I think ultimately <laughs> they're all the same. And it occurred yeah. to me that there are probably, and this has got nothing to do with English. I don't think there are any, this whole notion of shared narrative through a language is something that's very interesting because at what point are we the same? The structure of the story it's not the story is the same. It's it's like the, they're using the same bricks. They may build di- use different architectural models, but they're all using the same bricks, and that imposes certain limitations on what can be done with it. That's what I'm saying. It is an interesting phenomenon. I think certainly, certainly, as you say, the underlying elements, the word usage, these kind of things are important. But they're not everything. They're just they're they're just there, and they need to be accounted for. Certainly. That's all. Yes, but I think you know the fluency of language that we can have associated with describing these circumstances. There must be something. Yeah, it, I guess describe what circumstances. You know, Jimmy Savile next to Prince Charles. I mean, that doesn't. These things are word usage, but the the emotion, the elements of. Um, you know, views of either positiveness or negativeness or somewhere in between or, you know, disgust, all these kind of things are not in any way meted by the subject of the language. So to see these images... I'm not sure. I mean, you can say that. I I disagree. I don't think you can divorce language from your emotions. Well... Your emotions come from evaluations and the evaluations are done with language. Not emotion. Emotions are a response to an evaluation. The evaluation occurs before the emotion is applied. Have you ever been in a circumstance where you've either spontaneously started crying or spontaneously vomited or done a wide variety of things where (laughs) it is basically sublinguistic and a reaction to a situation? 
I mean, you've had no yeah. linguistic evaluation? No, but I'm saying I, I don't think that's possible to have. Just because you're not aware or focusing on the linguistic aspects, I would say that ling- language accompanies every, virt- every second of your experience. There is no time when language is disengaged. You may not have your attention on it. It's still there. It's still operating. It's part of the whole process. Well, as you've read in my Origin of Mind chapter... I see at least three, and it's only because I've described them in a simulation sense, it's not because I believe that they they are the only three, but there are at least three distinct points of reaction, of which only one of those is in any way language-related. Mm-hmm. And it's something that really strikes me, because occasionally... I find but again, myself, you're using the word language in a, I think, more restrictive sense than I am, too. Well, we talked about this before, about mosquitoes having language. Yeah, but the, the problem with that is that it stops meaning, it stops well, it meaning changes, anything yeah. in mosquitoes. I mean, there's no analogous... Well, it's, it's limited. It's, <laughs> you know, what it's, you're describing there is, yes, you're forcing language down to the raw biology, which is not the point that I'm making. And I think, basically, if you have a central nervous system versus a brain... The kind of linguistic programming that you're going to do is very different. Well, I, I, I don't quarrel with that. I mean, and difference in, uh, in quality in addition to just differences in quantity. Mm. Yeah, I'd say there are emergent properties here that, that aren't predicted on, you know, that as it gets more and more complex, it gets simpler on higher levels that, that couldn't even have been imagined uh, earlier. The whole idea of a multicellular organism <laughs> is, is a good example of that. Yes. I find myself periodically watching the movie The Fly <laughs> and reflecting on that experience, the notion that the tra- there's, if, if there could be a transition between insect and human, what actual effect would it have on the human or the insect? And it's an interesting... I, in one of the biota... Um, Biota Lives, I had a, on a, um, he's an embryologist and also radiologist, and he asked me if I thought I could be a spider or describe the experiences of being a spider, and I said I thought that was impossible. That basically my physical form is so much part, and this is completely removed from language, which is an interesting point because it goes back. See, and I would say, of course, it's not completely removed from language at all. My physical form? Not now, not at this point. They're, they're, when you were born, yes, but it's too late for you. Language is a part of everything you do. There's no part of your existence or experience that isn't touched deeply by language. But that's exactly the point associated with being a spider. Because you've mapped language down onto something that's far more biological than I ever would claim. But that's also the distinction between me and a spider. That a spider, by your definition, has its own language. Well, yeah, but it's again. It's, I'm not saying it's self-reflexive and is sitting there worrying that it's going to get stepped on. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying it has an internal mapping of its environment so that it can act coherently in its environment, and it it, and it has labels. Maybe not in the sense of words, but certain certain configurations in its experience lead to certain kinds of evaluations. These are all the fundamentals of language, and, and a spider has to be able to do that too. So taking it back to a slightly more tangible form, but equally curious, one of the cats we own is a Persian, 
and we got this cat in relatively later life. He's now a relatively old cat, although we still don't obviously know how old he is. But one of the factors that we found very strange is that he rarely purrs. In fact, he almost never purrs. The only time he purrs with any degree of frequency is when we present a kind of thickly knitted wool blanket, which he has a lot of fun with, and he paws it and he purrs. And we think that this comes from his prior experience with his previous owner. While my wife was away, I came home, walking home from work one day, and because it was particularly hot, I just kind of collapsed on the floor when I got home. And the cat went berserk. And it made me realise that maybe the cat had had an experience where his owner had passed away. <laughs> you know, and this yeah. was basically... A, what do you mean it went berserk? Do, I mean, what does that mean? How does a cat... What does a cat do when it's going berserk? So firstly, he started mouthing my head. Like, literally putting my his mouth around parts of my head. And then he started headbutting me. And then he started pushing up against me. And doing a wide variety of behaviors, which actually forced me to keep still because it was so strange. Yeah, okay, so he basically this, he's this, yeah, he's never done this kind of stuff before. I've never seen yeah. anything like this. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I stayed perfectly yeah. still and let him do all of this. Yeah. And then he just collapsed in like a state, <laughs> at which point I got up and wow. he was like annoyed with me in this point because obviously I was playing with him. But it showed, it's interesting because in terms of animal communication, in particular the t- amount of time we spend with these cats, the only means that we have of these kind of communications come through these kind of experiences that we need to have something that is shared and see their reaction. Yeah. And similarly, yeah. they watch our reaction too, yeah. um, which yeah. I think is very, very interesting. But it gave me a real, I was talking to my wife about it actually tonight, that, you know, it gave me a sense that this cat has had some experience with a human. I mean, this cat really, you know, yeah. he's always on my knee. He's always around me. He's, I mean, as we were talking last week, he was the one who was demanding to be stroked and what have you. And it's very interesting that you have these occasional shared experiences that give you an insight into this creature's earlier life, which mm. is, as you would describe, fundamentally linguistic, although I think it's, you know... The, not the fundamental, I'm just saying that, lingu- that language is fundamentally a part. I'm not saying it's fundamentally linguistic. I'm just saying linguistically is an, an essential part of our experience now. Mm. It's unavoidable. Yes. So, yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm not in disagreement with you, Heron, but I think there are still things to be analyzed here. That oh, there's may, a lot of work you know. to be done. Most of this is just bullshit. I mean, I make this stuff up. That's the nature of philosophy, Heron. Well, it's also the nature of linguistics. <laughs> I was having lunch with my co-workers today, and they described the circumstance where a particular recruiter was stalking one of them by um, tabulating Facebook and LinkedIn information and then contacting him. And I thought, this is the appropriate time to tell my stalking story with Tim Connor in Australia and the photographs and all the related nonsense. And they were really stunned. I think the part where um, Joe Berger, the fellow in Adelaide who was actually killed with a machete being in parallel to this, or at least something that I thought about, it's great about, you know, the negative effect of true stalkers and what they can actually do. But I think when I have these kind of interactions with my co-workers on occasion, it's very interesting. It's this whole notion of being normal. You know, you want to give the perception of of outwardly being just a... And I think basically I've pretty well removed that from my general experience with my co 
Lucas. I mean, it's too late for you. You're no longer, there's no way you can be normal now. Another interesting thing that came through. Congratulations. I think you, that's a, that's a milestone, really. I think basically when people are introduced to me, they typically get the sense, but it just diverges more and more the more time you spend. Well, like I say, that's good. (laughs) As far as I can see. I mean, it it may have some repercussions that you weren't prepared for. Well, the interesting thing was that (laughs) I can't recall which order it happened. I think it happened soon afterwards. We were talking about various painting <laughs> technique styles, and I produced a photograph of a, just a small section of one of these miniatures that a fellow painted uh, for me in the UK. And without skipping a beat, my co-worker said, oh, yes, that's a Warhammer style. And I thought, wow, this guy knows. And then he produced on his phone that he'd observed, maybe even participated in one of these toy soldier battles last weekend in Oakland. And I thought this is an immense insight. I mean, you've got to appreciate that... The kind of interactions that I have with my co-workers here are very different than the kind of interactions I had with co-workers in Las Vegas. It's slightly... I mean, I think there's something to do with just the incomes, but it's also slightly more staid. And also, there's a general sense that um, I have far too much insight on the human psychology. Like, basically, I can... It, any given... Aside from sports, which they don't raise with me in, in popular culture, or at least elements of popular culture... I can typically give quite interesting or quite detailed explanations, at least, associated with a variety of phenomena, which in part comes from, um, in part comes from, you know, studying philosophy, but also it comes from actually reading. I read vastly more than my... It's interesting. Most actually. people don't read. I'm. I, it, it's. It's shameful. Actually, that's one of the my tests for people. Is tell me two books that changed your life or that you read in the last five years. And most people don't. You know. That's the phenomena that I, I. One of my coworkers said that he hadn't purchased a book in three years. I purchase on average, which I think I'm the other direction. I purchase on average ten books a month. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I did so I got over that finally. Well, the thing about it is, so uh, last last weekend I I was speaking with my mother, and my mother's been a published author for a majority of her adult life, and is currently lamenting that although she's getting poetry and essays published currently, she's not getting full books published anymore. And in without skipping a breath, she said, "You know, I'm actually getting rid of a lot of my books." And I said, why would you want to be writing in a form that you're actively destroying yourself? Like, what's the, what's the outcome of actually writing a book these days if you yourself, as a primary consumer of books, are getting rid of books? It's an interesting... I mean, my- well, again, it, it, when you say book, you mean a paper book, yes. not, a, not an e-book. Because to me, a book is a, is a particular literary form. Whether it's on paper or uh, on my iPad is a secondary issue. It's an important issue, but it's still secondary. It's still a book. David Copperfield, <laughs> you know, on paper isn't any different than it is on an iPad. So I've started to realize, and I've done this through video footage, and I'm doing this progressively as well, that I'm just basically reducing my books substantially. And yeah. I'm doing this for a series of reasons. Firstly, I think it's... Um, I feel that I'm probably the last generation who will... And I feel or, already on the outskirts of a generation associated with my consumption of books, my reading of books, but also how important they are to me on some fundamental sense. And but Again, think, are you mean... You mean the, Again, when you mean book, you're talking about paper books, though, right? Well, I mean, I, th- I agree with you that it's an artificial distinction, and I've certainly dabbled in, in electronic books on the iPad. 
But I, my view is that the way I consume books primarily is, yes, paper books, because the books that I read in paper form, I can't typically get in an electronic No, form. I know. It, uh, it pisses me off. Yeah. It's awful. I still have to buy these fucking paper books, <laughs> you yeah. know? But, uh, well, at least I... In any case, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's quite frustrating. Last show, we talked briefly about a a film that I saw, I guess when I was in my mid-teens, that was never actually moved over. It wasn't even officially moved over to VHS. There is a kind of pirated VHS series of it. Um, And I think it was on YouTube for a short period of time, but it never made it to DVD and it will never make it to streaming. This particular film, um, one of the actresses was nominated for an Academy Award. So it wasn't a trivial piece of filth, although it did originally have an X rating and then moved down to an R rating. There is a book associated with it as well. Um, but in fact, there is no film left of it. Um, and they found a 16mm version that they found in Australia and displayed what's, it in LA. What's the name of the movie? Last Summer, oh, okay. which is, um, I think it's 1968 or 1969, which is actually based on a book which I immediately put into ABE books and then I realised, no, you're giving this media up. You can't purchase that book because it will just add another book to your pile of books. Um but yeah, I think in a in a weaker moment, and it had a sequel, which is what interested me as well, because I always wondered what happened to those particular miscreant characters. Um, but it is uh, it is an important point that we are losing vast quantities of information. Well, we're gen- yeah, but you know, so well, so it's, what's your point? <laughs> so the quality of the information that replaces it, I think, is very interesting. I don't it's, think it's about replacing it. Well, if, if that information is gone, then there's a, no. There's other information. There's hmm. just information. It's not replacing information. There's just information. Sometimes information disappears, and yes. then, but there's information, and that's just part of it. Information disappears, doesn't it? I mean, we can back up everything and be real careful, but ultimately. You know, information. I, maybe that's part of the, the law of entropy. Yeah. But luckily, we're able to accumulate it faster than it's disappearing now. That's an interesting point. The other thing that concerns me about books is mold. And a good number of the books that I own are actually a little moldy. Yeah. Which makes me think that I should either microwave them or just think of a better way of dealing with it. Because microwaving them does actually kill the mold. Um, it probably does, but it probably doesn't help the paper any. No, um, you can microwave at a low setting and it won't, it'll just dry the paper lightly. It won't actually do any damage. In fact, one of the techniques, if you ever get anything wet, um, is well, to I, microwave yeah. it lightly. Yeah. Um, but yes, I don't know. I think the volume of books that I have is more to do with something which... And it was funny, actually, when I was describing it to my co-workers... One of them uh, consumes audiobooks, but mm. none of them read. And you're talking about people yeah. who, you know, nominally are, you know, intelligent and... Yeah. They're brain damaged. You know, they, they, some of their channels aren't functioning. Well, the funny thing is I start to wonder whether I'm, in fact, the win. In fact, I, um, the reason I'm in the minority is because I'm ultimately caught up in something which is more than just a fantasy. It's, in fact, a complete illusion of well, the you're, benefits you're, of reading. Well, you're a brain-damaged language monkey, too. I'm not disagreeing with that. <laughs> you know, we've, we've all got our own particular uh, problems to deal with. Foibles, you know? yes, yes. <laughs> but it made me realize, I read, uh, so my books, I got to the Bonobo book, and I was just so disgusted. It was written in the first-person present tense, which always really annoys me. 
uh, particularly when they're talking about historical information and then present day information all in the present tense. I've discovered a small number of books that do this that are relatively um, well, popular sellers, and I think it's just a complete desecration of the English language. Um, so that one, also, it also frustrated me because it wasn't in any way, you know, the bonobos were kind of secondary to this woman's life experience. Um, <laughs> so that one very quickly went in the uh, yeah. went in the um, recycling uh, book area, which, yeah, in my wife's absence, got frequently packed with books. Um, so, yes, more will go on. But yeah, there was still a number that I'm going through. My plan is actually to record an update video in the near future just to show how many of the books I actually got rid of. I cleared yeah. out all my popular psychedelics, aside from the early psychedelic journals, which are um, pre-criminalization uh, and actually through the early period of criminalization, and also, which isn't really a psychedelic book at all, but an early organic chemistry book, which is pre-criminalization, that goes through in great detail associated with synthesizing a wide variety of now illegal chemistry. Um, and no, they are, they're books that I consider, you know, primary and not easily discardable. I think through some of the um, psychedelic journals, some of them are weaker than others, and I probably could cut some of them back. Um, and as a service to humanity, you should actually go to the trouble to scan the damn things and put them in PDFs and make them available. They're too fragile to scan, unfortunately. The spines, they were relatively cheap Then to destroy the books. For the scan, because mm. the book will be gone, and that'll be the end of it if it isn't saved. Mm. So it's better to sacrifice the book to save it. Boy, I never, that's, I never thought about that before. That's <laughs> Profundity. That sounds so reasonable, you know? <laughs> and yet, I mean, right, boy, yeah. you can see that argument in all sorts of places that wouldn't be quite so reasonable. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But, I mean, really, if you want to save that, you have to destroy it. If you have to, at least it will be there. And if you put it up, you know at least five or six other people will read it. The problem is that someone has recently recopyrighted and republished sections of it in a Screw contemporary them. book. Screw them. Put it up. Don't put your name on it. Don't do anything. Just put it up. Yes. Well, yeah, I'm... I picked up these for $10 a book. Mm. So my view is that people that want them can still get them, and there's probably only a small number that still want them. It is very interesting, Are actually. they still in print? No, of course not. Well, then how, what do you mean they can get it if they want it? I mean, have you done a search? Uh, AB like, books, there are on, plenty still available. Okay, so you can't, okay, all right, so they're there. All right. The popular ones, however, from the 90s through, I think I still have a cycle um, Psychedelic Encyclopedia, because I got one to Bob Mottram as well. But aside from that, um, and a couple of um, marijuana botany, I basically cleared out all my other psychedelics, because they're just not good. I mean, they're just not... If, well, if, they're nothing you're going to engage with again. There's well, nothing in those no, books that you're poorly, interested no, in. No, but it's poor, they're poorly written. I mean, they're basically... They're basically Trip reports with slight, yeah. you know, embellishments around the edges. Yeah, yeah, of no value to you. Exactly. And the thing yeah. that frustrates me is things like the account in one of them of um, being injected with DMT as a pick me up. And I just thought they uh, they've written this without pick any. <laughs> they've written this without any without any like. The, I need a pick me up. <laughs> 
straight to the heart, DMT. That's the way to go. I mean, it was a very curious. It also, ah, this is what this is what also was in the book, which which frustrated me. There was an account of um, Allen Ginsberg taking his first LSD trip on an international flight. And I said to my wife, I was reading this, and I said it out loud to her, is this possible that on a plane flight someone would take LSD and it wouldn't be immediately noticeable to those? Was this written by Ginsburg or somebody else? This is written by somebody else. It's an account of Ginsburg. And I said to my wife, particularly in the 60s, and someone who had given Ginsburg a dose would have given him probably a pretty good dose, that, that just seems completely... And I said, although, obviously, contemporary flying is a very different experience than it may have been in the 1960s. And tr- true to form, probably the, you know, the, the flight attendants were considerably more enlightened than they are currently. Um, but nonetheless, it just seemed to me to be a completely artificial account of something. There's a popular account of a fellow taking uh, acid with Groucho Marx as well. <laughs> <laughs> which was published in uh, early '80s High Times magazine. Yeah. Which always, I, I, I'm not sure what your feelings are associated with Groucho Marx, but Groucho Marx typifies basically my father's happiest moments. My father studied Groucho Marx through his early childhood as, I guess, the the Jewish performer to look up to in some regard. And a lot of my father's humour is basically Groucho Marx. <laughs> the problem is that he gets the timing slightly wrong, which means that if you can give a follow-up one-liner that's even better than his yeah, one-liner. That's, that's, yeah, that so, you know, it, it, it's funny, actually, because, um, you know, these kind of interactions are actually some of my kind of best, you know, moments associated with interacting with my father. Because he is someone who, on an intellectual level, really appreciates humour. Um, and it's funny, actually, most of the gifts that I've given him that he's enjoyed have been academic analysis of humour in one regard or another. Mm. Um, yeah, but, um, so, yeah, I guess I went through a kind of Groucho renaissance just before we picked up this recording series, probably February this year. And there's a lot of Groucho on YouTube, actually. A surprising quantity of him in later life. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube you'd never imagine. I, every time I look, anything I look for, the most obscure fucking thing in the world, I don't think I've ever failed to find something. Mm. You know, it's just astonishing. <laughs> there's more American There's more American and UK television than there is anything else. There's very small snippets of Australian television, but I can still oh. find things that are, you know, historically associated with that. But, um, yeah, it is amazing that you can actually spend... I mean, I was watching old... I must have been sick at the time. I think I was. I was watching old Dick Cavett shows and just thinking, <laughs> this, the quality of interview here is not great, but it's so better than anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, apparently. I used to watch Dick Cavett. He yeah. was great. Yeah. That was back in the television days. Yeah. <laughs> back when you watched television. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to watch those old... Uh, Programs. Yeah, just think so about you've health. watched you've watched Cavett recently. Oh yeah, I watched him uh, probably three months ago. And what's and so and that was from what year? I watched well, I watched the Grand Show Marks Cavett initially, and then I he had on um, oh the Godfather, um, the fellow Marlon, who played the Godfather, Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando, and he had on. I saw um, oh um, uh, Truman Capote. Okay, so we're talking what the eighties? No, no, uh, early seventies. Seventies. He okay, had on so, uh, yeah. Bill Cosby and George Foreman. 
Okay, and when I mean, Foreman was fighting, right? <laughs> when Foreman was fighting, yes, yeah. before the grill. Okay, so it's a long time ago. Also, how do they hold up? Is, is They're just amazing. I mean, the thing that you realize is that if Bondi celebrities were interacted with in this fashion, you would have to wonder which of them would be the intellectuals and which of them would just fall by the wayside. But to see... I mean, I don't know, if you have a format where you can actually show your intellectual form, you're probably going to appeal to someone such as myself a lot better than, you know, David Letterman. Yeah, that's right, I'm wondering. I, well, today. I guess Cavett was uh, was pretty successful, though, at that time. So is it, could he be successful today or someone like that? I wonder that. I really do. I wonder if... Well, what about Charlie Rose? He is... I, I, again, I don't know, but Charlie I, Rose just... I mean, we've talked about my feelings associated with PBS, but Charlie Rose just has such a... I don't know, such an institution. He's not in any yeah, way a I, radical. I, the quality no, of no, his questions no, are not going to, you know, rile people or move no, them they're, out they're, of comfort. Yeah, he's meant to get to their heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whatever that means. Whatever, whatever that, that means. means. Yeah. yeah. But you you can never say anything against, you know, NBC or any of these other things in front of him because he's employed by them part-time too. So, you know, you've got to see where his dinner money comes from in Charlie yeah. Rose's case. And, I, yeah, I, I don't think of him as being... Well, everybody's got a fucking axe to grind, though. I mean, there's just no way around that. You just, as long as you know what axes they're grinding, <laughs> then you, you can go with it. Yeah, you know? I guess my view is that... Certain axes are just, they just the, the, that grinding associated with the axes. But the thing that I liked about Cavett was the interplay between the guests. So the ability to see um, Truman Capote and, um, oh, a great homophobe. I'm trying to think who it was. Some religious um, leader who was a great homophobe. <laughs> on stage with Truman Capote rapping with him. Oh, oh and oh. then they had, that was one of the ones where they had Groucho Marx on as well. Groucho Marx and Truman Capote rapping. Mm. Is just you know you just think of this and you just realize who who of our kind of contemporary stock of celebrities are even parallel to these people. I mean, I, I guess yeah. yeah, it is a very well. I don't know. That's the thing is, I you know how much of it is the hype. There must be some intelligent people who are also famous and good looking. Well, I mean, I've heard positive things associated with his music purchases. Well, he's, he's purchased. He purchased um, some Motown companies, and he also purchased some music companies in Georgia associated with Justin Timberlake. Now, I never particularly liked his music, but he's also he bought MySpace um, and you know tried to turn it into a music site. And I think he's been in some films. I liked him in uh, Alpha Dog. I think there are a lot of people in, in Hollywood who are. <laughs> Pretty fucking tuned in, actually. I would think you know. But they just don't have the opportunity to show that being tuned in in a contemporary. Well, it's, no, it's not. No, it's, yeah, that's right. It's their publicity machine uh, is geared towards fourteen-year-old girls. So you know, which not, also appeals to fifty-year-old men that like fourteen-year-old girls. The, yes. You and I are not the market. There's no money to be made by impressing me. <laughs> you know, so. And again, that's part of the game they're playing. And they got people they pay to do that for them. So I have an iPad, iPhone app that finds both covers and sampling of songs. It's called Who Sampled That, I think. Mm -hmm. And I play this game where I find typically a, a Beatles or Rolling Stones song. And then I go through the various covers and the various samples. And I, you can, at least within oneself, create a... Out of these, which do you feel is the best 
cover interpretation. These How about which one is the one I like? That's exactly best. the point. Yes. That okay. well, no, exactly but you said point. which one is the no, best. No, no, no. But to oneself, to... this is what – you've, okay. you've clarified exactly what I was okay. saying. Okay. All right. I just yeah. wanted to – yeah. Thank yeah. you. Go ahead. So <laughs> I went through a series of Beatles songs and I came to – I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Magical Mystery Tour album, but there's a song by George Harrison called Blue Jay Way. Yeah. Which is associated – and I thought, there's a place in Los Angeles called Blue Jay Way, isn't there? Looked it up, yes, lo and behold, it's in the Hollywood Hills. Which is interesting, <laughs> actually, because Larry Yeager, the fellow who's now at Google, who is an artificial life fellow, lived in the Hollywood Hills for a period of time. And I've always wondered the kind of people that actually lived in the Hollywood Hills. So because I have real estate applications on my iPhone, I then plugged in Blue Jay Way and got a sense of the area, and as expected, all built in the early to mid-1960s, so George Harrison could have easily lived in one of those uh, places for a summer, as he did. What do you think the price, the average price on a property on Blue Jay Way is, Heron? Oh, it's huge, I know. I've got a friend who lives up there, actually, and it's, yeah, it's... Yeah, five and a half to six and a half million to live on yeah, Blue Jay Way. Yeah, and they're not that big a lot, either. They're bigger, mean, than, they're bigger they're than your average place. They certainly Oh, yeah, they're a lot bigger, but again, yes. and also a lot of them are on hillsides, so, exactly. you know, <laughs> the, the, the land is of very little use. <laughs> Well, yes, it is amazing that um, they've supported such structures for so long, although I'm sure they have seismologists and things that do surveying on that. Yeah, yeah. well, apparently, yeah, so far. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but the Hollywood Hills set is not, I guess I've never really spent, I spent a short period of time in L.A. when my father was based there, but I really haven't spent enough quality time in L.A. to actually start meeting people that live in the Hollywood Hills, aside from in passing. What does, what does your friend do? I'm interested in the professions that um, land you in the Hollywood I'm not, Hills. I'm not, he, you could say he's an entrepreneur. Very good. Actually, he's the guy who... Um, funded yeah, the keyboard? I'm, he's the guy that funded the keyboard. Uh-huh. Yeah. So how did you, how did you cross paths with this fellow? Uh, I did a seminar. Uh, I, I, at one point, I was actually doing seminars, sort of. You mean uh, giving on, seminars? Yeah, giving seminars on time management. Ah, uh, yes, your calendar seminars. Yeah. And uh, and this guy came <laughs> to uh, to that because he was putting together his own product at the time, mm. uh, which actually became one of the biggest of those kind of uh, self organizer calendar book kinds of things. He and his wife produced probably the biggest one that you could go into every stationery store in the United States and buy. Well, that's the trick with that thing, isn't it? You don't aim for the elites, you aim for the masses. Well, it depends on... No, you can do either or... You can, you can aim for the elites, but then the price has to be higher, and you have to... It's a different approach. There are people who do that, too. Yes. You know, you sell jets. <laughs> they sell jets to people. Certainly, certainly, <laughs> yes. Know, so. This is airline tickets, yes. I, right. I do understand the phenomenon. <laughs> it is... Yeah, it is an interesting phenomenon, nonetheless. So... Your time management stuff was actually your most successful pursuit in speaking, wasn't it? I mean, in terms of oh, the length no, and no. the money and these no, kind of things? No, none of it ever made any money at all. I mean, I, I made a few bucks doing it, but I mean, I, it, it was really irrelevant. Again, I devoted my life to this stuff, and this is what I do. This is what I did. If, I, if money came in, cool. If not, I met people. I met mm. this guy, <laughs> you know, who later became has become an really. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether friend is the right word. We've got a, a unique relationship, mm. and uh, but he's been invaluable to me. Like I say, he he funded this uh, this keyboard. 
How frequently would you communicate with them? Uh, never very often. A couple times a year, maybe. Okay, well, that's during frequent. During the times of uh, when the keyboard was actively being developed, we, we talked every month, maybe, or so. But, but basically, not much. He's a busy guy. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah, I, for a period of time, for whatever reason, I was the contact person for um, the phone hacker, John Draper, I think because I was the most accessible of the people that he knew. And I would occasionally field calls from wealthy aristocratic talking folk from the UK and these kind of things. And it always struck me that Crunch basically, although he had this thin veneer of homelessness at every turn, did have some pretty interesting financial backers that would just mysteriously fund various projects for him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's an well, interesting life to be not, amused. Well, to be amused? Yes. I'm not sure I understand. Well, I guess, I mean, I tried to interpret these relationships as much as I could taking messages. And the thing that struck me from it was that their interactions with Crunch were associated with his kind of Forrest Gump of technology persona, that he just had contact with all these people. And through that experience, I guess, he would offer some random insight you know, while he was chowing down on his Denny's. Um, oh, I mean, people would what take ask him out to, for dinner, <laughs> and and then he'd answer their questions, or they pay him. I don't know. I never him, really, or, never really uh, made any sense to me because my interactions with him were, I guess, they're not analogous to my interactions with you at all because you're considerably more, I don't know, intellectually viable and responsive. But uh, the things that struck me associated with talking with Crunch was you'd you'd leave just as many of the conversations shaking your head as you would leave the conversations in any way enlightened. And oftentimes <laughs> it was almost... Yeah, I, your- <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, a, that's, a, that's a scary uh, territory to, to think about. Yes. Is, is uh, the, that whole borderline. I've known a lot of people who, who are just fucking crazy as hell but make a whole lot of sense on a whole lot of things. Yeah, my view is actually the crazier... I mean, I've, we've talked about... Um, the fellow in Canada who was in and out of lunatic asylums and then he'd call into Biota Live. And some of the, you know, best stream of consciousness conversations I've ever had were with him. Well, yeah, I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm I'm just, yeah, I'm not evaluating this. I'm just saying that it's, um, well, actually, I'm not quite sure what I'm saying now. I think I seem to have lost the drift of it. Very good. How's your wine glass doing? Well, it's empty, but I, I don't really feel the need. Okay, we well, can keep going. Go, yeah, <laughs> I, I shouldn't be forcing alcohol on you, Harry. No, I'm the you bad probably shouldn't. Yeah. I? I'm yeah. the bad influence. That's right. Well, no, it was fun getting rip roaring. That's the drunkest I've been in probably 20 years. Astonishing. So that, but that, so that was sort of an interesting experiment, actually. The funny thing is, actually, while you were while you were smoking on your pipe, you did become more sober through the conversations. I'm interested, actually, in hearing from the listeners. I haven't heard back. I was hoping to hear back from Joe the drummer associated with whether I'd done his topics any service, and particularly if he could surface any more topics, because certainly yeah. we, we like rapping on his stuff. And similarly, other listeners, if they want to submit topics or ideas, um, I got a, a couple of emails from some of the frequent participants on the Facebook group, kind of both of them saying um, that they were always concerned associated with giving topics, because um, 
well, particularly the kind of heavy ridicule that a relatively light-hearted topic was put on uh, last show. But then all we can really <laughs> what do did is, we do? <laughs> this was the one about whether I was a member of the Lu- Illuminati. Oh, oh, that one, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, m- m- well, I mean, somebody was taking that. Well, I can. Someone actually took that seriously. I don't think anyone took anything we... Uh, do you think anyone takes anything we say seriously? Hell yes! Maybe on your side, not on I, mine. Well, I don't know about you. I, don't, I can't be responsible for you, but I take what I say seriously, even if I am having fun doing it. Very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll try to take our stuff more seriously, Aaron. <laughs> no, well, seriously isn't really the right word. No, it's not about being serious. It's about having intention or something, something else, yeah. Yeah, it's not about – that's the wrong word, really. I take it seriously. No. I take it intensely. I take it uh, passionately. Hmm. Yes. Yes. So two topics kind of intertwine together. I am now working with an artist who I think is absolutely phenomenal. The thing that strikes me about her work is that – um she adds elements of humour and subtlety to the writing, which I think is really good. She does storyboarding, we work through the various sections, and then basically she delivers. There yeah, are right. a couple of things. The interesting thing is that you're sharing an experience that you've never shared with another human being because you're seeing their response back to your writing yeah, in a very yeah. real form. It's yeah. a very interesting process. And oh, yeah. yeah. With, with, now I have an artist that appears to be um, fully committed. She does a series of really interesting things. She'll kind of cutify things, and she also adds elements of sexual innuendo which aren't actually there, which are really quite strange in the way that she draws it. <laughs> Some of them I've asked her to remove, others I'm just going to leave in. Yeah. But um, yeah. Well, this is a process. I mean, you're going to discover new ideas about this in the process of it. So just be open to what – yeah, yeah, it's going to be fun. I, I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it currently. Oh, Although yeah. I up from 6.30 in the morning till about 7.30 in the morning. It's um, certainly yeah, very interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah and I think also you have to have a really strong degree of intellectual respect for the people that you collaborate with in this level. And I think I'm certainly um, feeling that with this interaction. Yeah, yeah. My wife is also heavily involved with it as well, and which is quite fun because we kind of look at the stuff first thing in the morning together. Uh-huh. And my wife is actually a lot more um, obviously because it doesn't. This relates to primary experiences that I've had. So you know, I have a particular vision associated with the experiences, but I've come to appreciate that someone's interpretive vision of that is no less valid than my own experience. Yeah, yeah. It's, with it it's just it's, your interpretation. Exactly. That's all. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. actually, I mean, I think the um, the light-hearted. You know, that's a really big insight. Really, I mean, that applies everywhere across mm. the board. It's it's your insight. It's your idea. Mm. <laughs> you know. That's huge. Yes. So the sequel, which I've never really talked about in any public form, has the conclusion, a kind of civil war element, which basically absolutely devastates the suburban setting. And I had a dream last night in that environment, which I thought was extremely insightful, because I have a kind of conceptual level understanding of the kind of conclusion, yeah. but to have that emotional, mm-hmm. yeah. actually in yeah. the environment that you've intellectually created. Yeah, and yeah, I spent, yeah. I spent a good number of hours actually exploring the environment. It's one of the great things about lucid dreaming is that once you're in a dream state that you want to be in, provided you have time to actually sleep, 
you can really explore the environment as much as possible. You can turn yeah. things over. You can get a sense of, you know, uh, tactile and also sensory elements. You can smell things. It's very... Um, when you get into those kind of environments, you I just love exploring them because it gives a great degree of insight in the um, writing of it. I think the form that these things will take is that I will give her the unpublished written version of this and then also obviously I do the lettering and the layout and then she can fill those in and uh, you know work on it. My view is that um, although the first two stories will be intertwined, towards the end of the comic I want to actually introduce some of the sequels um, you know, is it a, wait, let me ask you, is this a comic or a graphic novel? So this is an Does it make a difference? Point. My view is because of its length, it's probably more considered a graphic novel, but she is very much of the kind of comic book style. So there's a cutesy element that she does, even in kind of darker things, which I think is ultimately going to be stylistically... Potentially, I don't know. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, graphic novels usually look dark. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't have that element. She still has cartooning elements to her drawing, which I think is going to be, particularly as it gets darker, continuing those elements. But I think it's. The well, those can get more perverted. Well, though, the beauty so, yeah, of yeah. that, the element, though, is it lulls the reader into a sense of security initially, yeah. which will kind of get them deeper into it and then basically yeah. through the yeah. twists and turns. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm thoroughly. Um, but this is a. You know, this is a probably at least a thirty-week project to the point where we get to Kickstarter. I've kind of established a speed yeah. of production, and I have a sense that we have this length of time. Yeah. Well, now that you're getting started, that's the whole. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that's exciting. You yeah. know, because yeah. you'll start to get material. And have you gotten any material at all yet? That's, so I've uh, had I've had three pages. She sent me um, nine pages of um, storyboard. And she's done three pages of pencil, which she now needs to go back and revise and ink. And that'll be the first three pages. Actually, they won't be the first three pages. They will be the 13th, 14th, and 15th page, because I gave her the um, kind of jungle setting first, because it's more difficult. So I wanted to give her the slightly more difficult stuff initially, just to get her into that style, and then throw her back to the earlier stuff with the view that she has at least, you know, defined the style um, with slightly more difficult sections. But no, it's a very interesting process, Harry. Oh, yeah, you're going to learn a whole bunch. I am already. I am already, but I do appreciate that I'm going to learn quite a bit more. She's, um, so, yeah, she's, I mean, she's Italian, um, and I guess she's probably, I don't know, she could be in her early 30s, maybe late 20s from the image on Freelanced. Uh, but, yeah, she's obviously done this for quite a bit of time. I mean, she's not... You know, this Does she make her living doing yes, this? Yes, this is a profession. Yeah, yeah good. So, good for her. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, now we move into slightly more esoteric topics. There is a film coming out in the near future associated with, I think it's called either The Interns or The Internship. I think it's called The Interns. And it's basically... About the guys going to Google, yes. right? Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm sorry, I jumped right ahead. No, of by all means, no. It's it's always good when you come in with the <laughs> with the material there, and it's always positive. <laughs> I think that this. I have a very interesting relationship with Google. Um, I once interviewed there in 2005, not at Google uh, Mountain View, but in um, Santa Monica, and I have this phenomenon when I interview. Well, I've only, I think, just two. Yeah, just Google and Amazon. 
where they have six interviews that you do. Well, obviously you have telephone screening and then you have a technical telephone screening and then you go to the campus for a day and you meet with six uh, team members, maybe a couple of managers and some engineers. And in both cases, the last person in the room is angry. And I've talked to other people about it that have experienced this. And my view is that you're not, you're supposed to confront the person rather than placate the person. And it's my, um, ah, okay. I think that's the oh, this is part of the strategy. Exactly. How do you deal with an angry person? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And with, because I hadn't really worked this out because I have the Google experience and the Amazon experience, <laughs> I've converted, converted with more Google people since. I think the strategy is to be angry. But my view with both these companies is that they are tarnished by the recruiting methods. And I think irrespective of the... I mean, my experience first coming and actually looking for... Wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm just going to stop you. Tarnished is, I think, begging the question. They're, They're affected by it. You think it's bad, but this is your evaluation. So My evaluation. I would say it's tarnished by it. It's certainly affected by it, and you're claiming affected in a negative way. Yes. Okay, okay, good. Go ahead. So <laughs> when I moved back here in 2005, when I was here with startups, I had no interest in working for these kind of companies. When I moved back in 2005, I did some consultancy uh, for Fujitsu and a company called Digital Theatre Systems that makes surround sound systems. But I also interviewed with Akamai and I interviewed with Apple and a few other companies. But the thing that struck me was that the a few of the companies, Akamai and one other company, used exactly the same interviewing technique, down to the same <laughs> exam, down to the same mistakes in the exam. Yeah, yeah. My experience with Apple was slightly more surreal. I was interviewing for a um, 3D and printing evangelist position, of which there's only one in the Apple. It's basically a fast route to, you know, middle to senior management. And that one, the fellow who interviewed me, a fellow by the name of, I think, John um, John Glenzie, I think, said um, that I was too technically honest and that I would be required to lie in this position and he wouldn't feel comfortable. He thought I was basically going to solve a whole lot of third-party problems rather than push the Apple line, which I thought was actually a really quite straight evaluation of my behaviour and what I would do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and funnily enough, they then contacted me six months later saying, are you still interested in this technical evangelist? And I said, is, is John Glenzie still recruiting for it? He'll still have the same concerns. Why are you still contacting me? Yeah. Um, I have a somewhat story relationship with uh, Apple HR because they now contact me four times a week. I'm on pretty well a first-name basis with most of the Apple recruiters now. Um, but it is an interesting phenomenon associated with these large tech companies, and you do realise, irrespective of, of the people you know and the friends that you know who are in them, that there is almost like a lock and key system to actually get into these companies. And in the case of Google... My experience has been when I'm contacted by technical recruiters at Google, and the reason I'm contacted is because there are people in Google that have used Noble Ape previously or used, have used Noble Ape at Google. And there is a small group at, at Google, who some of whom are ex-Apple, that would dearly like to see me at Google. My problem is that if Google doesn't change its recruiting, then I'm pretty clear that you know I don't particularly want to work at Google. And it's an interesting thing because... Unless you've had these experiences, and I have a number of friends in technology, some who work at Google, some who work at Apple, what have you, 
And they all understand that these companies actually, and their recruiting methods and actually what it's like internally within the companies will self-select employees. Of course. I mean, that's, yeah, that's hardly news, is it? But there are subtleties in there which I don't think the general public necessarily understand. Well, the general public doesn't necessarily understand how to change channels on their television. But the more interesting thing is when, <laughs> when and the, the interns as a phenomena just basically seems to be associated with um, promoting Google's failing technologies, particularly their social <laughs> technologies. It is a company that's designed to make a profit. So it the, is a capitalist civil, you know, civilization. Have you spent any time on Google Plus? <laughs> no. Well, I mean, five minutes. Yeah. So I go to Google Plus. It's it's like I don't know. It's almost like tithe or something. It's almost like some obligation that I have to make because really? there's there's a group of people that I know. It's like Twitter. There's a group of people I know that are only on Twitter. There's a group of people I know that are only on Google Plus. And it's worth making the journey. Well, yeah, why is it worth it to you? Why, why is spending your time on Twitter and Google Plus of any value to you? Well, for example, Bob Mottram is only on Google Plus. So well, I, you can't, he doesn't have Skype on his computer? Well, I spoke to him last weekend on Skype. It's on the okay, podcast so I'm yet to edit. It was bumped out by a Stone Ape editing marathon. But moving yeah. on from that. Yeah. So, yes, I do talk to him on Skype periodically. You could talk to him anytime you want to. Right, you could yeah, just. I organize it. it with him. I organize it with him. He's well, not yeah, always on Skype. Yeah, yeah, but no, I know. But I mean, if you want to get a hold of him, or if he wants to get a hold of you, you don't need. It's to do with a passive. Plus. No, but I mean, it's to do with the nature. I mean, like Twitter, for example. There are half a dozen people, and I made this point actually to one of them, who I was quite close mm-hmm. to when I lived in the shed in Australia. I said, "What other social networks are you on?" Because he was on Facebook for a period yeah. of time, and then he got off it. He said, "Well, I'm on LinkedIn, so I've added him on LinkedIn, and he's not." Ah, uh, uh, okay. I, yeah, yeah. This is a problem. This is why the only thing I do is Facebook. The exactly. rest of it, the hell with it. You know, exactly. No, Facebook I, I does similar. everything I need. Yeah. You know, if we're you want to know, fundamentally what, Romans, though, Aaron. I mean, we both agree associated with English, and we both agree associated with Facebook, and we're both Apple junkies. So we're just basically fundamentally Romans. Uh, well, that's part of it, yeah. What does that have to do with it, though? Well, you see, it's interesting because the people that I know on Google Plus are just, they're people that have some part of their kind of ethical makeup that's just slightly, I wouldn't necessarily say broken, but perturbed and kind of fundamentally. Well, yeah, they're different. Yeah, okay, they're different species. I understand yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I sort of understand that. I, I've been on Google Plus. I don't see anything particularly compelling about it. Mm. Oh, the lack of people is really uncompelling. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, it's just, uh, I don't say, there's, there's just a lot of people here on Facebook. And Twitter, I just can't imagine why I would want to limit myself to 140 characters. That's just stupid. It is strange because, again, there is a small group of people that I know on Twitter. Well, just then Twitter. you shouldn't know them. You should write them all emails and tell them what fucking idiots they are and tell them to come onto Facebook where they can say something longer if they want to. So I guess the <laughs> phenomenon, the phenomenon on Twitter is that it captures a period of time around 2007 in my life, maybe 2008 when Twitter first came out. And through that period of time, I was doing a small amount of, it wasn't even really consultancy work. It was more mentoring for two of the guys that had appeared. Are you familiar with Jackass where they would film kicking each other in the nuts and things on MTV. 
A jackass? Yes. Yeah, oh yeah, vaguely. I mean, so I yeah, it, so yeah. a couple of the guys, and one of them who I think, actually they're both pretty smart guys, one of them works at GlaxoSmithKline as a as a organic chemist, so, you know, he's not, he's not, uh, he's not short on things to do. And the other one actually is more like a comedic kind of visionary character who basically, I don't know, he's appeared on Model Rail Radio, actually, a fellow by the name of Brandon D. Camilla. Um, and also, um, you know, another fellow, and it was a period of time where I was in almost constant communication with these people because we're all of roughly the same age. They were very interested in my experiences with Wozniak, but I was And tell also, me again, how old are you? Uh, I'm 36. 36. Okay. Yeah. Go on. So just... you know, Twitter captures that because they follow me on Twitter. Like they have, you know, 40,000 followers. Wouldn't they follow you on, on oh, Facebook? They follow me on Facebook too, but it's a different yeah. kind of funnel. And so you actually, told, so you post to Twitter and to Facebook? Or, no, or it's, do you not? It's, it's simultaneously, when I post to Twitter, it goes to Facebook. Oh, okay. All but right. I, haven't, I haven't been on Twitter for about a year and a half. I've only recently gone back to Twitter. And the funny thing is that Twitter generates absolutely no commentary and no discussion, whereas everything I post on Facebook seems to at least generate something. Yeah, Facebook is great. I love Facebook. I don't really use it very well yet, but uh, mm. I'm not in any hurry. But it's, I, I can't imagine a better place to be. Mm. How, many, how, many, how many people are on Facebook? Two billion now? Something like that. I mean, fuck. Where... where 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 is there anything that's even close to that? Well, you see, the interesting thing is that the, the, the conservative folk that buy stocks and shares don't see it that way. Well, I don't care about them. I mean, I probably should, because, but, but that's a secondary issue. Just as a platform, as a place to reach human beings and get organized and, ex- and exchange ideas, is there anything better than Facebook? It's a good point. I guess, yeah, I guess Skype just, is an important part of it. Skype is another thing. I, I can't, yeah. Skype is fundamental to my strategy. <laughs> yes. Yes, the strategy. That's what we should be. But the, the interesting thing about it is I occasionally catch myself, and I have for this week for whatever reason, that I can't imagine actually working, aside from a startup that I was an active participant in, which was my experience here previously. But I can't actually imagine working for another company in this part of the world than the one that I work for. And I think in large part it's to do with the problem space. Because, I mean, if I worked at a company like Apple, for example, the problem space that I would have to solve would be considerably smaller than the kind of problem space I have to solve at Netflix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if I worked at Google, similarly, although my friends at Google tell me that they are, although I never actually am allowed to hear about the details of their projects, they tell me that they do amazing and wonderful work. And I don't think it's actually seen. I mean, one of the beauties of working at Netflix is that almost everything you do is seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you get people complaining about well, it. Well, <laughs> yeah, but when you get things right. But at you, least, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no it has it. an effect and you can yeah. see it and you know you're doing something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. Which I, you know, I know people at Apple that are in relatively senior positions. Well, see what, these what I want to do. Yeah. yeah, I want to get to a place where where money is just not the point. You know, yeah. where the, somehow that gets handled. There are all sorts of ways that could or could not happen, but the, it would seem that the point is to get to the place where you can apply yourself to whatever it is you think is an interesting thing to be doing. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I mean, I think... No, I think you need to be about both of them, actually. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, if if th- that's basically yeah, my strategy is to work on them both. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I haven't solved the money thing yet, but um, but that's okay. I've done a good enough job so hmm. far. So. Hmm. <laughs> my wife has very cunningly put me in the smallest hottest room in the house and is progressively adding cats to the room um, to, to make a very subtle point here. So unfortunately, I think the recording will be cut a little bit short this evening. Um, That's okay. The final topic I wanted to raise was that um, I had one of, not necessarily one of your uh, kind of epiphany television experiences, but one evening, in fact, it was the night before my wife came back from Southern California, I turned on the television. And I thought to myself, I had a bit of model rail radio to edit, but I thought I never, as television is a drug that is to be, you know, experienced and abused, I very rarely actually watch it when given the option. I thought, let me find a program and watch it and do it as an experience. <laughs> yeah, let's see what this is about here. So yeah. I found a show associated with a pawnbroker in Detroit. And I know Detroit, well, I know Michigan from my experience there almost a year ago, where I spent, I don't know, two weeks in Michigan. And I think we've talked a little bit about my experience on a laundromat in Michigan. But the purpose of the show seems to be, and this is quite a large pawn shop in Michigan, where people are, I don't know, putting in goods to get money and all this kind of stuff, seems to be to focus on the people in the pawn shop who are causing trouble and are thrown out of the pawn shop. And I watched this for probably about two hours. I wasn't watching it with any degree of focus. I moved around. I Wait a minute, two hours? So this is a movie or what? No, no, it's a series of half-hour programs that they Oh, put you were back, watching back them back-to-back. Back. Okay, I yeah. got you. All right. And the thing that struck me about it was it was actually really, really disturbing. And it was one of these curious things. I mean, my... Wait, well, let me ask you another question. Was it designed to be... It, it wasn't designed to be viewed that way. It was designed to be a weekly thing, right? Uh, that's interesting. I'm not really sure. but even Because that could weekly, be an entirely different experience. I think, I think it, it would be... Because there was no resolution within these conflicts, it was just a... So, for example, the head of security was caught stealing gold jewellery. I mean, you need to understand Detroit in a kind of fundamental level. I spent a short period of time in Detroit, but I certainly got this from rural Michigan as well. That there's a, um, there's a harshness of reality, perhaps due to the weather, perhaps due to the economic environment, perhaps due to a variety of factors that produces a kind of survival characteristic which has no veneer of hospitability of, 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 you know, of, I don't know, the kind of qualities that I would associate with human interaction. And this <laughs> okay, is a cold, hard reality. Yeah. Cold, yeah. hard, not enough money. Yeah. yeah you do what you got to really do. Hostile. If you pay the exactly. price, you pay the price. Exactly. So there are all these circumstances associated with people Funnily enough, bringing in their most valuable item, their television, or the, you know, a computer, oh, yeah. or something like this. Well, that whole world, through. yeah, that's got to be, yeah, yes. that's perfect language monkey territory. And this is exactly the thing that got to me: <laughs> was that this is an environment where these people are really they're they're more they're not even in the you know uh, paycheck away from the streets. Yeah. They yeah. are in, already in that dire position. They don't yeah. have access to credit. 
They probably have limited access yeah. to salary. And they're, all they they're on the do, edge of being homeless. Yeah, all they can do is bring in their things and argue about how much their things yeah, are worth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fucked up existence. And then if they get out of that situation and they have to pay for the things to come back, they're annoyed when they come back with scratches or, you know, things yeah. have been mishandled. Like I say, it's the whole, the whole environment, everything about it is just poison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a poisonous system. My experience in terms of being in laundromats there <laughs> was a sense of the fact that, I mean, I was extremely polite to the people and they almost kind of react in, you know, just like I was suspicion. some alien. Yeah, it was suspicious <laughs> that someone would be yeah, polite. Yeah, why would the hell would anybody be polite? <laughs> in a laundromat in Michigan, yeah. But also just a sense that I... I was I had the choice to be there. You know, they didn't have a choice to be there. I had chosen to come to Michigan. I had chosen to spend my yeah, summer holiday there. This is why I'm a hermit. Yeah. <laughs> I think these fucking scare me actually. Humans scare the shit out of me. Yeah. There's a thin I mean for most of them they you know as long as they think they're okay, they're they're not they're actually charming at times. But boy, you know, when when it gets to be questionable about survival, it gets real nasty real quick. Yes. And I think the the thing that caught me in the show was that it was actually it was actually kind of eulogizing this desperate human emotion in a really perverse sense. Mm. I mean I I was going to record with uh, Tracy Portillo um on the Saturday but she the the times didn't work out and I I may still uh, record with her. Um, but she was part of one of these reality TV show snuff things. And I guess, yeah, the format is now becoming so so strained that I can't see... Yeah, you know, it just it strikes me as just a really strange <laughs> thing. This whole yeah. framing of television. Well, watching the end of, of a civilization, watching a civilization crumble before your eyes is yes. an awesome experience. <laughs> yes. It's like seeing a tsunami where it breaks just at your feet. But in fact, the practicality is probably that you're going to drown in the experience. We just well, like th- to that, think th- that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that we That's a crash. good analogy. The thing, my sense is, if if we if I stay alert enough, I'll be able to surf this wave rather than being swamped by it. Mm. But the wave is coming, so the only issue is to stay on the be alert for signs of this wave coming. And that if you train yourself to be at least less stupid than you were earlier and get your language machine working properly, you might be able to analyze what's going on in a way that will allow you, like I say, to surf this wave rather than be swamped by it. That's my my hope, I guess. That's what I'm trying to do, supposing I live that long. Again, to me, this is a 30 to 50 year issue we're talking about. This ain't going to happen this week, probably. Hopefully not. Yeah. Because I'm hoping to talk to you next Friday night. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but it could, because that's the thing is, really, the whole thing is just resting on a promise. (laughs) And once that promise is broken, the whole thing could collapse overnight. It could be be scary as hell. The interesting... 
insight, and this is what I'm going to leave you with because I'm about ready to pass out in terms of being in the environment that I'm in, ah. is that the Civil War in my novel comes not from the two artificially, apparently opposing dominant political parties, but associated with the rest. And as the rest becomes a majority, as it is in this country, a clear majority, eventually the nonsense stories and internal disputes are basically going to annoy the rest sufficiently for, you know, for things to change. The interesting part about the novel, which I think is, is seen easily in terms of the world being the battlefield, but also a lot of this immense anger that you see in terms of the, you know, the military complex going forward, is that when it's, in the case of a civil war, when it's turned on its own population, that ferocity is going to be very, very interesting. Um, so with that, I'm going to leave you with that thought, Heron, because I'm about to pass out here, and I've run out of air. Um, and folks, this will also probably give the opportunity for the folks that email me from uh, 6am through to 8am on Saturday morning and then progressively hourly <laughs> up until Saturday evening that there may actually be a chance that this podcast gets out to you by that time. Um, it is very interesting, actually. Uh, the person I know is Mr. M, who you refer to as... Um, why don't we just call him Mate or Moat or Moats or whatever? Anyway... He contacted me to ask about my German-speaking ability. And I, um, my role as a German, um, my role in Germany was to understand rather than to speak. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I probably, in a German environment, could actually speak German. But as I'm not in a German environment, very similar to my ability to speak French or Bahasa, uh, the language of Malaysia and Indonesia, if I'm not in the environment, there's no real incentive. Have I ever told you about my experience? As um, We weren't newlyweds, we were just moving to the UK, but we went to France, uh, my fiancé at the time and I. I hadn't spoken French for at least 12 years. And just stepping off the TGV into um, Mio, which is where we landed, um, I was able to uh, order a cab get a meal ordered, argue with a waiter associated <laughs> with... My French came back to me instantly, like it had always yeah. been there, but it just needed to be yeah. in the environment where I had yeah. to use it. that makes sense. Yeah, sure. It's an amazing thing. Well, that's the whole thing, is that language escaped the individual brain. It really is a social function. It isn't something you can do by yourself. Yes. That's a perfect example of that. Well, with that, Heron, I'm going to leave you this evening, and hopefully one day in probably the next six months we will actually have a house, which means I will have a podcast room and other related... Oh, your own you know, studio. Yeah. That's right, you'll have a studio. I've always... You see, even when we lived in Vegas, basically, I was in a kind of large open-air thing, actually, in the top of the house and had... Uh, a shelf with a small layout and a hanging mic from that shelf. That's kind of nice. Yeah. It was. I miss the uh, ability yeah. of having a house. But it will be coming soon, Aaron. Yeah. So tonight, um, I actually like the fact that you picked topics this evening. I, I think if, that, if you can continue to do that going forward, it would be I, I make no promises, as you know. We'll see. <laughs> we shall. These just happened to come up this week. Yes. Well, have a good evening and a good week, Aaron. I'll talk to you next Friday. Take okay. care. Okay. Good see night. Ya.